Welcome to episode 263 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Last week, one of my favorite interviews, University of Calgary environmental law professor Martin Olashinsky, tweeted about the conflict over energy and climate policy between Alberta, which wants to double oil and gas production. It's already uh, the eighth largest oil producer in the world. And the Canadian government, which will shortly bring in an oil and gas emissions cap that will probably reduce hydrocarbon production. It's a very good chance of that. He argued that both governments are using proposals to affect regulatory outcomes and pointed to a 2017 paper by Professor James Coleman by way of explanation. That paper is titled, Policymaking by Proposal, How Energies Are Transforming Industry and How Agencies Are Transforming Industry Investment Long Before Rules Can Be Tested in Court. I have my own theories about Alberta's energy strategy, but I'm anxious to hear what Professor Coleman has to say about it, because he also taught at the University of Calgary, where I first got to know him, actually. So welcome to the to Energy Talks, James. Well, thanks so much. It's wonderful to talk with you again. Likewise, it's been a long time. I was checking my files. It was 2020 was the last time I interviewed you. So that's far too long, far too long. Now that you're moving to Minnesota, you'll be a lot closer. Uh, and congratulations on your appointment in the at the University of Minnesota. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's very it's very exciting. That's where I'm from, so it's fun to be going home. Well, I have a Minnesota story for you. And uh, back in 1975, I uh, uh, was contacted by a high school in Bemidji, and uh, they said, "Come on down and play hockey for us on the varsity hockey team." So, you know, after a summer of working and putting aside a little money. Uh, some buddies of mine and I in Winnipeg uh, piled into my friend's old VW bug, and we headed down to Bemidji, got there, phoned up the coach, and he said, ooh, ooh I forgot to check the rules. You you know, you, you Canadian, you're not allowed. And so I had to get, I had gone 1,500 miles to get to that pay phone. I had to go all the way back, 1,500 kilometers, and uh, that was as close as I ever got to living in in Minnesota. But it looked like a wonderful place, except that, you know, it was it was wall to wall mosquitoes that were the size of horse flies. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, you know, obviously ho hockey's big there, but I, I have to say we always feared the Canadian team. So I remember, you know, all the youth hockey tournaments, there'd always be some, you know, team from Thunder Bay or whatever that entered and and uh, usually usually dominated. I have to say in 1975, my, my this is my one observation from playing some games, high school games. Uh, down there for American teams uh, is that we were we were playing Broadway bullies rules, and and I could never understand the what I saw as the lack of passion, and you know where I grew up, it was a common saying was hockey is war, that's just that's the way you played it on the ice, that's not the way the Americans play it. Well, that's no, not, isn't in the you know the sort of the proudest moments of you know Canadian hockey history are you know, breaking the ankle of some Russian in the, in the Canada cup. Right. So it's, yes, it's, kind of, it's, yes. it's, it's all, it's all about that. No, it, it's true. And and Minnesota actually has a reputation always has for uh very, uh very fast, clean hockey. I mean, it, because look, if you look at the university of Minnesota where um you know, for a long time, that's all we had as far as hockey, right. Because after the stars left, they, um they played on an Olympic size ice sheet and they also, unlike all the other American collegiate teams took people straight out of high school, all from Minnesota high schools. And so 
they were never going to have the size of all the other collegiate teams that recruited people from juniors. And so they were playing people basically four years older, much bigger, but what they had to depend on was, uh, was speed and skill. So they were a fun team to watch, but a lot of times they got beat up, especially when they got to the playoffs and played on those, you know, smaller kind of NHL size ice surfaces. Well, my hometown, which is 1100 kilometers North of Winnipeg, this is way up North. Uh, the year before I went to Bemidji uh, briefly, uh, I actually played with the former captain of the University of Minnesota Gophers. Oh, cool! That, yeah, that... he had he had uh, he had finished his degree and and come north to make his shekels, make his stake in, in grub stake in life, and uh, and so I got to to play alongside alongside him. I was a defenseman, so he as he as was he. But enough hockey, enough hockey. Moving on, um, we're going to talk about this. I. Just as as a background, James, and because you you've spent a fair amount of time in Alberta and, and pay attention to Alberta issues, um, the question here, my framework for understanding current Alberta energy policy, which really literally the premier said we should double production of oil and gas, is that the industry and the government has bought into the OPEC slow energy transition narrative. Came out OPEC's uh, World Oil Outlook 2045, which came out last fall, is the modeling that that is the basis for the narrative. And if you believe that peak oil isn't going to, uh, sorry, if demand is isn't going to peak until 2045, and then it'll be a long, slow decline, then why wouldn't you argue for for doubling? I personally don't hew to that view. I think the IEA is the International Energy Agency is much more, uh, better, much better modeling, and we're likely to see peak demand before 2030. But that's now, but then that does. So the question is, how do we explain the behavior of the Alberta government in all of these crazy fights they pick with the with the Canadian government, and and what Martin is saying is, look to what James has argued in this paper. So maybe we should start with what is your argument in the paper? Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, Mar Martin is wonderful. It's very kind of him to cite the paper. The uh, so the idea is sometimes, and this particularly applies when governments are facing more scrutiny from the courts on their legal efforts, right? And and this is something that we've seen. Uh, certainly in Canada with both, um, you know, we, we've we've seen folks, I mean, I think back to British Columbia saying we're going to use every legal tool we can to stop the uh, Trans Mountain expansion, right? All of those ideas are basically ideas that may not legally be valid, but the idea is by threatening or proposing to adopt regulations that would be particularly challenging for an industry, whether it's a you know, a pipeline industry, oil and gas, or a clean energy industry, you can influence investment in those areas. And so I think this is something that we, uh, that we've seen a lot in the United States, because in the United States, over the last 20 years, we've been in a circumstance where every administration that comes in, and this applies to Democratic and Republican administrations, has sort of try to push the boundaries of the law to accomplish their goals, either in terms of, you know, allowing more investment in a certain kind or trying to actually stop investment, whether it's in coal power or maybe now liquefied natural gas exports. And the idea with that is, well, you might not have your regulation upheld in the courts, but if you can propose something that would be punishing enough 
to whatever industry you're targeting, you can discourage investment in that area. And so that's sort of um, that's sort of the idea. Now, in theory, it can also work the other way, which is if you uh, propose some kind of you know regulation that would really open up an industry, maybe that encourages investment, even if there's a possibility that that uh, that that regulation ultimately will be struck down. So it, would Obama's uh, clean power plan, which was opposed by the states and and they were sued by the coalition of states, federal government was, and and you know the clean power plan was basically the first attempt to really get coal out of the system and reduce emissions. Would that be an example of this? Yeah, undoubtedly. So that's one of the examples. Two of the examples I use in the paper are there was a coal mercury regulation that EPA adopted uh, right before the clean power plan and. It was, a lot of people said, I'm not sure if this is legal, but as that regulation worked its way through the courts, in the meantime, coal power plants were shutting down because they were facing this choice. Do we make this big investment in complying with this rule or do we just shut down? And many of them said, well, I'm not sure if the rule is valid, but I don't want to risk it in the courts. And very few companies ever really want to risk everything on a legal throw of the dice. And so they said, you know what, I'm just going to shut down. Well, it eventually made its way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, this rule is invalid. But, you know, one thing that the, the administration did, and I think maybe they regret this in retrospect, is that after it got struck down by the Supreme Court, they said, well, it doesn't matter because all these coal plants already shut down, right? And so, and that I think gave courts the notion that, the that again, this sort of idea of policymaking by proposal, that these proposals, before they could even rule on their legality, they were having a big impact on investment. And so when the Obama administration did something sort of similar in the clean power plan, what was unique about it is like, unlike those other projects, it didn't really, you know, a lot of the other previous standards had mostly applied to coal plants when they were considering a new one or when they were having to renovate it anyway. The clean power plan would have applied to existing coal power plants. The Obama administration proposed something that I think a lot of people thought, ooh, this is very legally questionable. But the idea was, well, maybe it will push investment. I think what happened, though, is that the court and, you know, and I'm not the I'm not the only one who said this, although, you know, this is it was sort of part of the general framework of policymaking by proposal. Is that the court, having seen what happened with this mercury rule, where the EPA seemed to say, well, I don't care if you strike down my law because they're going to have to comply with it anyway. The court stepped in much earlier with the clean power plan. And so, I mean, extremely early. It was it's the only time it's ever done this, where basically even before the case was heard in the district court, I'm sorry, the appellate court where it had to be uh, considered, the D.C. Circuit, the Supreme Court stepped in and issued an unprecedented stay order. And so it never went into effect. And so I think we're seeing an increased, uh, we're sort of um, back and forth, you know, tug of war between the administrations trying to influence investment before things can even be reviewed in the courts and the courts in some some circumstances actually stepping up and deciding the issue uh, very quickly. I, I have a, a, a framing of this for you to, to see if you agree with this. Is it possible that both federal government and perhaps state governments say, okay, look, we know that industry is going to, uh, particularly the energy industry, is doesn't like to be regulated or likes to push back against regulation. So we know they're going to push back against a particular piece of legislation. So let's make it really stringent. 
let's make it, you know, we'll propose something that's really got teeth to it. They'll push back. They'll probably take us to court and we'll settle somewhere in the middle and we can live with that. And that that would be incremental uh, step forward for us. And we're OK with that. And we, we basically play the industry. Uh, is there any of that going on? Yeah, that was, so that's another idea that I explore in the article, which is it's a little bit counterintuitive. But if you are proposing something that pushes beyond maybe what legally you might be able to get away with, there's almost an incentive to propose something even more radical. And the idea for that is, let's say that when the, the industry is considering its future investments, let's say it's thinking, you know, I... I, you know, how much, how, you know, how much capacity do I want to add to this oil sands facility? Or, you know, how many of these different projects do I want to consider? When they're considering their investment path, maybe when they, if they think that your regulation is likely to be struck down or possible to be struck down, they're going to say, well, I'm not going to fully, I'm not going to treat that regulation as a given. I'm going to say, well, there's some probability that it will be adopted. And so, the incentive is if you, if as an administration, you want them to treat that, you want them to act as though that regulation were certainly to go into effect, you might actually propose something even more radical so that when they kind of discount it by the chance that the regulation is not going to go into effect, they still end up in the amount of, uh, with the amount of investment that you're looking for. So, you know, for example, you could think about, you know, if the, if the, um, you know, if the Biden administration really only wants 50% of the proposed liquefied natural gas facilities to go to go forward, well, maybe it says that we're going to have a cap of, you know, 25% of those. But it, but some of those projects think, well, I, you know, I'm not sure if that's going to hold up in court. So I'll go ahead and invest a little bit more and they end up with the 50% they're aiming at. I want to use an example from Canada of how maybe the federal government is using this, or maybe it just happens inadvertently. But uh, in 2015, the NDP government in Alberta brought in the Climate Leadership Plan, and there was industrial emitter carbon tax on that. So they, they brought it in, and it was fairly well received by industry, at least the big players. The little players didn't like it very much at all because compliance costs are relatively higher for them. But the big the big guys were were certainly on board, and they're the, you know, far, they produce far and away most of the oil and gas in, in Alberta. So they bring it in, and... And then uh, down the road, um, the federal government comes in and says, OK, we're going to have a national carbon tax, both industrial and consumer, but we'll allow uh, governments to enter into equivalency agreements. So if the provincial scheme meets federal standards, then we'll just go with them. And if they don't or they won't imply it, then we'll, we'll impose one on them. So Alberta already had one. So they entered into an equivalency agreement. And the argument was, in fact, you can see Professor Andrew Leach, I think, uh, made this argument that the, the change in government in 2019 uh, and the switchovers from CCRI to, to CCIR to uh, TIER diluted the impact on the oil sands. But then they came back, the feds did, and said, no, we need to toughen this up. Like, you know, we're going to renegotiate this and we're going to make this more stringent and you're going to have to do things quicker and get the emissions down. So they did that. And so once they had the system established, then they could go back and turn the screws. And so ultimately, they may not have got what they wanted when they wanted, but they're going to get what they want sooner mm -hmm. or later, because now they've established the principle, the mechanism is in place and, you know, they can point to 
you know, uh, international agreements like the Paris Agreement and, and targets and all of all of those things. Is, is that a strategy that governments pursue? Yeah, undoubtedly. Sometimes you just want to you want to establish a principle that you are allowed to regulate in an area and then you can kind of ratchet it up uh, more and more going forward. I mean, I think that's something that we've also seen. You know, I think we may look for that with that kind of idea of border carbon adjustments in Europe, where Europe has said, OK, we've had this carbon price forever, although places like Canada have mostly carbon prices across uh, you know, across the provinces in the U.S., most of our output is not subject to that. And, you know, my guess is when that's first implemented, there's probably going to be all kinds of exemptions for the U.S. because they kind of want to establish a principle. Well, we have the right to do this, even if we're not going to apply it very harshly to you at first. But I think that over time, you might see that ramped up. So, yeah, undoubtedly, um, that's a proposal. And, you know, and I know that in Canada as well, where we see these kind of strategic um, proposals where you're not sure of its legal validity, but you're kind of trying to set a strategy to influence investment uh, is often in areas where there are some legal disputes, right? You know, does it does the federal government have the ability, you know, have the uh, does it have the authority to set these kind of, you know, ensure that each province sticks by its carbon prices you know, we've seen the, the fights about, you know, Impact Assessment Act, et cetera. So we, there's lots of different areas where there's that kind of legal uncertainty. That's always been the case in the United States. I think it's increasingly the case in Canada. And so I think you're more likely to see these kind of strategies moving forward in Canada. I, I want to get you, keep keep on the topic of uh, uh, industrial uh, emitter taxes, because there's a huge fight going on right now between Alberta and the federal government over the imposition of an oil and gas emissions cap. And in, in 2022, the federal government came out with a discussion paper on it, and they they uh, suggested two alternatives. Either you can uh, tighten up the existing emitter, you know, do more of what I suggested uh, earlier, or on top of that, car that carbon tax, you can impose cap and trade. And I looked at that discussion paper and I went, well, if I was managing the politics of this, I would go with not I would not go with cap and trade, because if you're going to have a political fight with Alberta, it's a lot harder for them to make the argument when it's all you're doing is making the existing thing more stringent. The public doesn't get that. You know, they go, oh, they already approved it. We already have targets. You know, what's the problem, Alberta? But when you're imposing something new. Now you've just given them a whole big opening on that, and that's where we're that's where we're at right now. And I just, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that whole debate. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, I think there's um, I'm I'm sure the politics are tough at a federal level as well because you know I think mo most economists looking at this question of you know how how should Alberta's oil and gas emissions and its oil and gas production be controlled would probably be happy with a higher carbon tax. Because the idea is, well, you know, if everybody's paying the full impact of their carbon emissions on the on global warming that we all experience, then, you know, even if production triples in Alberta, it's not a problem. Because probably if everybody's paying that tax, it's going to reduce somewhere else. And, you know, we can't predict going forward where most oil development should be that depends on the you know how technology costs uh evolve across uh across the world and you know maybe um and so i think that that 
means that most people would be happier, you know, economists with a price. But on a sort of intuitive level, I understand why, you know, Canada looks at its emissions and it says, well, our emissions keep going up and it seems to be mostly about the province, <laughs> province of Alberta. And so just on an intuitive level, that, seem, that seems bad, even if an economist would be perfectly happy with it. And so, I, I mean, you know, one sort of disconnect, I think, and I, Andrew Leach has talked about this as well, is that, you know, in I, the reality is that Canada actually has, uh, unfortunately, it has really kind of picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit of reducing its emissions because in more than 50% of its electricity comes from hydro um, because, you know, it is a place where you need a lot of heating, a lot of a lot of energy use. And so, you know, if you impose the same carbon tax in Canada and the United States, what you'd probably see is that U.S. emissions would fall dramatically as we pushed coal out of the system, as we had, you know, more efficiencies. And in Canada, they might not fall at all, or they might even they might even increase. And so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between sort of the economist idea of like, as long as these emissions are appropriately disincentivized, discouraged, who cares, you know, where, where the emissions happen. Uh, and then the sort of intuitive idea, which is, well, we want Alberta's emissions uh, not to go up so much. Uh, you know, Professor uh, Trevor Tom, uh, Tom from uh, University of Calgary, but kind of made that argument, you know, why penalize the, the oil and gas industry? And my argument is that the current system, the output-based allocation system, uh, yes, it, it taxes the marginal barrel uh, higher, but you know that's great in, in economics 101 or whatever you know class you're taking. But in the real life, you know, I looked at Suncor's uh, annual report, and last year they paid 47 cents per barrel for carbon compliance when prices were in the 80 to $100 range. It's nothing. And 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 they projected out, uh, you know, 10 years from now when the carbon price would be over $170 a barrel. And they paid it. They're, they only think they're going to pay $170 or sorry, $1.70 per barrel, which, again, is almost no incentive. So if 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 uh, Trevor Tome's argument were correct and Suncor were paying $5 a barrel or $10 a barrel, I'd say no problem. But it seems like we're letting these guys off the hook. They're the biggest uh, emitters by far in Canada. And yet at the same time, the system we put in is really just a little minor inconvenience. It's not enough to get them to change their behavior. And and it doesn't alter their investment decisions uh, when it comes to lowering their, because they never lower their emissions. And I don't, I don't know where we're going to go with that, James. I just saw that as an observation uh, kind of related to your point. And and I'm I'm a fa favor of much more stringent carbon pricing on the on the oil and gas industry. I think that's the only way these guys are ever going to to lower their emissions. But look, uh, thank you very much for this. Very insightful. Glad to see you again. Uh, enjoy your uh, enjoy your five month old uh, new addition to the family. Enjoy your uh, trip to Minnesota. And uh, when you get there and get settled, we'll do another interview. Well, that sounds great. Great to talk with you. Likewise. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you.